Well, so uh, I don't know if I've, I've told you all about the board game stuff before. I don't know if I've talked a whole lot about this other thing I did when I was growing up, which was play baseball. Okay, baseball was the only real sport that I actually played competitively. Uh, I kind of wanted to play some other sports, but I think my dad didn't make those teams and therefore didn't want me to play those games. So uh, I, I just, that's an assumption. I'm just, I've never really confirmed that with him. But he played baseball and loved baseball. He was a catcher. And that was one of his passions, so that's one of the things that I think he found it easy to take me out in the yard and, and do. And so I remember having a mitt pretty early on, and I have a lot of memories of spending time out in the yard with my dad um, playing catch. Um, but it didn't really work like that. It wasn't just like, here, I'll toss you the ball and you catch it. It was always a learning experience, and it was always a matter of improving your fundamentals and getting better. So my dad would play catch until we got kind of the hang of that, and I could you know, generally catch the ball. But then he'd say, okay, now there's other things you need to be able to do. And he'd say, I'm going to throw this ball on the ground, and you need to get in front of it and scoop it up with your glove. And he would throw the ball on the ground, and I'd make some mistake, and it'd get past me. I'd try to hold my glove out here and scoop it up. And he'd say, no, 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 no. When we, get a ball, when we get a ground ball, we get in front of the ball. We put our knees down, bend our knees, get in front of it, block it with our body. Nope, don't pull your head. The ball's not going to hit you in the face, and if it does, it won't hurt that bad. Just do it. Um, <laughs> I later proved to him that the ball can hurt a lot in the face. That wasn't on a ground ball. It was on a pop fly, but that's a story for another day. Um, all that being said, like we, we would work on it, and if I messed it up, it was we'd try it again. But it, it always felt like Dad added a little extra challenge if I messed it up the first time. I was like, I'm going to make this one come a little quicker. Or if I didn't run up to meet the ball, if I sat back and waited on the ball to come to me, which if you've ever seen a ball rolling grass doesn't always happen, um, you know, he might throw it shorter so that I have to run twice as hard to go get it. Until we had that mastered, right? Until the point where like these fundamentals were ingrained in me. I didn't have to think anymore about getting down in front of the ball. I could judge where it was going to come. I knew where to go. I knew how to get in front of it. I knew how to block it with my body. I knew how to keep my eye on it. When it came to catching things in the air, I knew I was going to hear about it if I didn't have my other hand up next to the glove. Because two hands help secure the ball. And you're also ready to throw the ball so you can move quicker. These fundamentals were ingrained into me. All these things that I was taught to do from the time I can remember. And there was always this process, right, of you do this until you you practice, and you keep doing this, and you keep doing this, and you keep doing this until you do it right. And now that you've kind of mastered that skill and that fundamentals ingrained, we're also working on this other skill. So whether it be the pop fly or how to properly stand with a bat and how to keep your eye on the ball there and how to manage all of these things, eventually you learn the skill, right? And I, I, over time... All of these things are ingrained in me. It doesn't matter if it's baseball. It doesn't matter if it's some other sport. It doesn't matter if it's um, learning an instrument. Whatever it is, we start to practice these different fundamentals, these different skills, and we can do these exercises. We can do these drills repetitively over and over and over again until our body starts to react without thinking, right? Until our body just kind of starts to do the things that it needs to do. You, you start, I tell the kids all the time, they're trying to learn something. Nora bought a ukulele. Ellie has got a recorder in the house. There's a lot of trying to teach each other how to play instruments that they themselves don't know how to play yet. And they're, they're wrestling through this, and, and I keep telling them, hey, you don't have to play that song at full speed. You play it slow, right? And once your fingers learn what they're supposed to do, then you can speed it up and go faster. These repetitive things that we constantly do, 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 that it's kind of the way we're programmed and taught to learn things, right? We want a checklist. Here's the fundamentals you start with. If you can learn these six basics, and then you move on to these next things, and then you learn on to these next things, and you keep building on this, 
there's kind of that checklist of I know how to get through this process. I know the lessons I need to learn. I know what I need to build on. We like that structure because we like the control of knowing what's coming next. Now, we talked last week about the fact that our spiritual journey and all this stuff is a process. It's a journey. It's an ever-growing thing. There's not necessarily this final destination other than heaven itself that we're trying to achieve every step of the way. We're not setting our eyes on a certain person or individual. If I could just be like them, that's what I want to attain. We're just constantly trying to improve and get better. And we talked about the fact that in learning things, sometimes this can be a hang-up and we don't feel progress. We don't feel like we've accomplished this step and some people stall out and just give up on it. But for those who persevere, for those who keep pushing on, for those who keep learning, they like this structure of control. I know if I can master this, the next step is this. I like knowing things. I like being in control, don't you? I like knowing what's coming. I like knowing what's next. I like knowing what I have to do here in order to succeed there. I like having that control. And learning something feels like a sense of control sometimes because if I mastered this, I feel like I now have control. I know how to work it. I know how to do it. I feel pretty confident in that. The spiritual journey we're on, one of the first things we have to figure out how to do is let go of some of that control. Learning how to let go of some of our handle on what should happen and learning how to trust God in that so that we can follow his path. It's like if we were to head on that road trip I joked about last week with Tess and I this vacation, you know. We joked about this road trip that I wanted to take out west and and just drive. What if we were headed on this journey and you've seen the little bumper stickers, God is my co-pilot, right? And it's, it's this mindset that was meant to say, God's with me everywhere I go. And it was a sweet sentiment. And we like to tear it up and say, well, that's a silly thing to say. God's not your co-pilot. Because if I ever sat down in the driver's seat and said, all right, God, um, just trust me. We're going to go. If I need help navigating or something, I'll ask your help, right? I'm going to head out this direction. I'm going to go to try to figure out where you're at. But you just sit there. And, and when I need your help, I'll, I'll ask for it, right? That would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? It would be silly. The person who knows where we're going, the person who knows every pothole along the way, the person who knows everything about the journey we're on, if we said, if I need your help, I'll ask for it, just sit back and don't be a backseat driver, just sit there until I'm ready to ask for your help, that would be ludicrous. Yet, a lot of times that's the way we drive. We try to take control of our own life, we try to head where we think we need to be, we try to go until we hit those rough spots, and then we ask God for help. This morning we want to talk about what does it look like to let go of control and what is it we're actually supposed to be doing or becoming in order to start taking these steps along this journey. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, a passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, and we're going to talk about some of the significant things that are happening in that passage. But before we do, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful again, like I said already so many times this morning, for you and your life and what you've accomplished in this world by dying on that cross and offering us forgiveness. Father, we want to be faithful in pursuing you and following you and taking those steps to become the people you've called us to be, believing in you, believing in your mission, believing in everything you were about, and taking the steps forward to follow you in this journey of becoming more like you. And this morning, you know, Father, that there's a part of me that's a little anxious because the words came too easily this week. And Father, I don't want them to be any of my well-crafted words or anything that came too easy, Father. I want it to be your message that's challenging. I want it to be your message that's convicting. I want it to be your words that speak to our hearts this morning. And so, Father, again, I just pray that you would take um, these humble efforts and that you would help them 
to, to impact the hearts and lives of each of us, myself included, that we might draw closer to you and take one more step further down the road in this journey of what it means to follow and serve you. I love you, and it's in the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray all these things. Amen. So like I said, Matthew chapter 4, you want to flip there and get settled. I, I mentioned, we, we read this a few weeks ago when we were talking about what Jesus accomplished through his life, right? Adam failed to stand up, Adam and Eve failed to stand up against this temptation of the serpent in the garden. And so here Jesus is standing up against that temptation, standing up and saying, no, this isn't the way we must go. He's showing a selfless nature. And again, we've, I've heard lots of sermons preached on Matthew chapter 4, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And, and I've heard it used in reference to how Jesus uses scripture to stand up against temptation. I've, I've heard a lot of different things, but I was reading a book here recently, as, like I told you last week, this is the book I quoted a few things out of last week, this invitation to a journey. And he presented this picture of this story that, again, changed my perspective. It was something I had never really noticed about the ways Jesus was tempted. Why was the devil tempting him in the way that he was? And before we dive into the text and what it actually says, I want to point out the, the, what's just happened. Jesus has just gone and been baptized by John, right? The Spirit, after Jesus is baptized, descends on him as a dove and lands on him. And we hear this voice say, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased, right? And so here's this moment where Jesus is receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. It's falling upon him. He's being completely um, just filled with the Holy Spirit like we've seen other people in Acts, this flame that shows up on their head or all these other pictures we've seen of the Holy Spirit and its power. Here it is falling on Jesus, and here he is ready to start his ministry, and you're like, wow, he's got the power of the Holy Spirit. What could he accomplish next? In the beginning of chapter 4, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. To me, this seems like an odd way to start this three-year ministry we got planned here. It seems like this odd way, there's all this buzz, because there were people around when John baptized him, right? There's this initial buzz that here's this one John's been telling us about. John said, this is the one who I've been proclaiming. The one I've been telling you is coming. Here he is, and I'm a little hesitant to baptize him because he should be baptizing me. And here this spirit descends on him as a dove, and we hear this voice. That's a really cool way to start a ministry, right? That's kind of like this big, significant, wow, this grand entrance onto the scene. This, little, this guy from Nazareth. We knew there was some buzz about who he was and who he might be. We've heard the stories of his birth, but wow, this is a big deal. And yet here he is being led into the wilderness to be tempted. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Forty days and forty nights. How many of you have gone like three days and three nights without anything to eat, right? It's not a comfortable feeling to go a day or two. Here Jesus is, forty days, in the wilderness, completely dependent on God for everything. Not just spiritual feeding and like his heart being lifted up with peace and joy and those kind of things. We're talking about complete dependence on God for life. Here he is completely surrendering his body and everything he is to trust in God completely because the Spirit has led him to be here. And this tempter comes along and says, you know, you have this power. This is, some of this is a little implied, but if you look at it and say, why would he tempt him to change bread? Well, because he's hungry, of course. 
But he's, you have this power. Imagine what you could do. You could take care of yourself. You could provide for yourself right there with those rocks. You could turn them into loaves of bread. We know later in the story that Jesus has the power to do amazing things with bread. We see him take and break and bless this bread and feed 5,000 plus people and have leftovers in abundance with, one, or with a few loaves of bread. We know he has amazing power to do these things with the Spirit working through him. We know he could, and yet Jesus responds with this. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. This amazing response is, yes, Jesus holding on to God's word, but it's saying more than that. You want me to focus on this world. You want me to focus on how I can take care of myself. You want me to take control and provide for my own needs, but you need to understand my heart is being aligned with God's heart and his perspective that this, this place, this physical world, this food that I feel is so important, the things in this world that I feel are so important, they're not as important as you think. And we survive not just on food, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. His direction, his guidance in our life is what feeds us and sustains us and keeps us. It's his heavenly realm that is important, not this earthly one. It's a great response. Well done, Jesus, right? But here's the next thing. He takes him. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Again, here's this temptation, this thing. He takes him to this great height and says, Look, you could jump. The angels are going to come and rescue you. You could, you could throw yourself from here and the angels will show up. And won't you, in that moment, prove and show that you are exactly who you're going to try to proclaim that you are? What kind of sign would that be for everyone in this holy city, here in the middle of all of this people and crowd, here in this moment, what would it show them about who you are? How many will come to believe and how many will come to follow because of what they see in that great an amazing moment. Because Scripture says, you want to use Scripture to, to stand up and make your defense, but here's the thing, Scripture says that He'll bring His angels to save you. Because the tempter's good at tempting. And Jesus is better yet at defending. He says to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's this interesting moment where Jesus says, you know what, you want me to do things my own way. You want me to take control. You want me to show all these people in this way that violates who God has called me to be. Not to put on this big show and to do something that will draw all these people in. That's not the way he's called me to do it. And therefore, we shouldn't test God in his promises in this cavalier sort of dangerous way that isn't part of his plan. We need to follow his plan and listen to his ways. And again, it's not about what would make sense in taking control of the situation and just doing what seems like the right thing. It's about following what he says is right and gaining the perspective through a different route. And finally, again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Takes him 
up to this high place and shows him everything. And we think, well, who's the devil for him to offer up anything? It's not like this isn't all God's to begin with. You've got to realize God gave this tempter, the devil, rule to kind of mess with us, to give him domain and the ability to kind of be here and have this place. That's why the world is such a mess. He continues to tempt. He continues to whisper lies. He continues to mess with this world. And by him saying, I'll give you all of this. I'll back off. I'll step away. All of this can be yours, and you can accomplish your mission right here, right now, by drawing all these people to you, because I'll leave them alone if you bow down to me. You could accomplish and do everything you need to do. Everything you've come here to, to accomplish and to do, you could have it right here, right now, if you bow down and worship me. But Jesus understands that it's not about taking matters into his own hands. It's not about worshiping some false sense of accomplishment. It's not about worshiping anything but the Lord God, the Father, and doing things his way. And he says, away from me. I shouldn't worship anybody but God himself. I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm going to do this the way that it needs to be done. It's pretty impressive when we think about it, and it's pretty powerful when we think about it. And I was wrestling with all of this because, again, when you kind of look at it in light of what's really being said and where they're really at and what's really happening in these moments of temptation, it's offer after offer after offer for Jesus to do something that will allow him to control the situation and to accomplish the things, really, ultimately, that he can accomplish. That he, things that he will accomplish, things that he will do as, as time goes on. And yet, here he is, standing up to the temptation, saying, my perspective, what I'm here to understand, the ways that I've put myself through this for 40 days and 40 nights, isn't so that I can hold on to this world. It isn't so that I can prove myself to be some amazing thing through great wonders and signs. That's not the point. It's not about what I can do to allure all the people in. And it's not about the easy route that the easy steps that I could take that would get me to my destination or my goal quicker. It is about becoming who God has sent me to be. About becoming something that is more significant and more long-lasting than a simple fix, a quick to-do that it could accomplish these things. In this book, I wanted to read this little quote. Real simple little statement here. He says, The temptation is for Jesus to use his empowerment by the Spirit to do something that will authenticate God's call. More significantly, it is a temptation to reverse the roles of being and doing. The temptation of our culture has succumbed to this very same thing. We tend to evaluate our own meaning, our own value and purpose, as well as those of others, not by the quality of our being, but by what we do and how effectively we do it. If you think about it, you get to know somebody for the first time, and you're meeting somebody for the very first time, and you start to shake their hand, and very quickly into the conversation, what's one of the first questions that comes up? What do you do? Why do we need to know that? Huh? We don't, right? <laughs> I don't need to know. But one of the things that helps us to do is categorize someone, right? Immediately, I can put you in this tier. I, I, was, I think it was maybe this book. He was, yeah, I think it was this book. Uh, he was reading this thing he was talking about. He said, I'll sit on a plane sometimes, and I'll tell people I'm a professor. Oh, well, that's cool. What do you teach? Religious studies. Oh, it's kind of like, it was really kind of cool for a second. Oh, but then I felt, my, I felt like I dropped back down a few notches after I said I teach theology and religious studies. It's kind of this understanding that when we meet somebody, we gauge 
who we think they are by what they do. Oftentimes we'll ask questions. Well, are you married? Do you have kids? What have you accomplished in this world? What is your worth and your value and your prestige? And where do you stand in this world by, based off what you have done? Because we continue to succumb to this idea like we talked about back in the sickness. This idea that I can gain an image and a status for myself. I can gain notoriety and, and I can gain acceptance from people by what I've accomplished, what I've done, by this image that I built up, the way others perceive me, the way people understand me. And we put a lot of weight and significance, even here in the context of the church, in what we have done and what we do. The reality is God is calling us to become something, to be something deep down in our heart, to shift our understanding from this physical world and the things that we can do to the heart and what it is we understand, how it is we perceive, what it is we see, how we picture and view this world through his eyes. Are we becoming Christ-like in the way that we see things? When I first started college, um, I didn't, I'd never heard this word in my life. And I uh, was taking a class, it was called the hermeneutics, that wasn't the word I hadn't heard, but quickly I found out in the syllabus that in this class called hermeneutics, I was going to write an exegesis. And you're like, what's an exegesis? That's what I said, maybe you've heard of it, I hadn't. Um, exegesis is basically like a deep dive into a passage of scripture and its language and all of the details about it to determine its, deep, like its meaning and significance. Usually it involves word studies culture studies we look it's kind of what we do to dive deep into a passage and and say what is it what's every piece of information i can understand about this passage so that i can really grasp what it was trying to say and so i was assigned this exegesis paper it was going to be one of the longer papers i had ever written in my life and it was going to require more study than i had ever put into a paper in my life because high school was way too easy at clay city um and i buzzed through way too easy and hadn't really had to do real work in my life at that point and so all of a sudden here we are i'm wrestling with this massive paper and the passage i was given or well actually it was a list of passages and i was like yeah romans 12 sounds good little did i know how much choosing Romans 12 was going to impact my life and my perspective on what it means to be a Christ follower. Because I still remember the night I'm sitting in the library. And there's all these things called commentaries. If you've not read a commentary, good for you. Um, no, they're, they're fine. They're good. They're helpful, but they're really a little dry at times. It's not just fun, delightful uh, uh, entertainment-type reading. It's, it's really heady, really scholarly uh, kind of information. You're trying to fight your way through it. And I've got a bunch of these things piled up around me as I'm sitting in the library with a bunch of other friends who are struggling through this first project together. We're trying to share different pieces of information we find. And I remember reading in this word study about Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'll read them for you here real quick. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm reading through that, and I'm looking through these word studies, and I'm trying to wrestle with the text, and I still remember that moment where I read this simple idea Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed and renewing in that passage. You know how we have uh, tenses. 
uh, different things that are grammar and vocabulary. It's like who's actually doing the action, who's performing the action, where's it at? In the Greek, the original Greek here, these are passive words meaning you're not the one who transforms anything and you're not the one who renews anything. That God is the one that transforms your life and renews your mind. He's saying don't become conformed to the world. The world will tell you go do, go do, go do, go do. Accomplish all these things. You have to accomplish this list of things in order to be who the world says you should be. You have to accomplish all of these things and stop doing all of these things in order to be a Christ follower. You need to do all of these things to be a Christian. And God's word, time and time again, is telling us, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is something I will accomplish in you. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't continue to look like them and do all the things that they do. Because doing all the things they do and buying into all the things they buy into and and holding on to all the things they hold on to isn't going to get you anywhere. But be transformed by the renewal of your, not actions, your mind. This word is very intentional. It's our mind. It's our understanding. It's our perspective that gets renewed. And what's amazing is when our perspective and our mind, the way we think, the way we see, the way we understand this world, when our perspective is shifted, isn't that going to deeply impact our actions? It is by becoming Christ-like in the way that we think, in the way that we love, in the way that we understand this world. It's by becoming like him, being Christ-like, that we start to act as Christ would act. But we are so busy trying to do the right thing, become the right thing, practice and practice and practice the fundamentals until we just do it. It's like you got you to just discipline your way through it. You got to keep reading. I know it's not easy to read Leviticus today, but just keep doing it because eventually it'll take hold and you'll have those fundamentals down and you'll become the super Christian because you did all the things you were supposed to do. And I'm not saying that's bad, don't get me wrong, because by reading God's word, our perspective is changed. Our mind is renewed. Don't hear me say that that's a bad thing. But we think just by doing it, we can become the person we're supposed to be. All the meanwhile, God is saying it is a deeper issue than your actions that makes you a Christ follower. It is your heart. Jesus, all throughout the rest of Matthew, continues to talk about that. In fact, Matthew chapter 4 finishes up not long thereafter, after he calls some disciples. And then chapter or Matthew 5 is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And all through chapter 5, Jesus challenges perspective. He says, you have heard it said, don't kill. Don't do this action. This action is bad. Don't do it. You've heard that said time and time and time again. You've heard the law saying, do not kill. But I am telling you this. If you're holding anger up in your heart, if your perspective is about what you're entitled to, if your perspective is about how someone wronged you and how they mistreated you, if your perspective is holding a grudge against someone and holding on to that until it's boiling up inside of you, you're already guilty. Because your mind has not been renewed, your heart has not been renewed, and you're holding on to anger, and you think as long as you don't act on it, it's all okay. But I'm telling you, drop that offering that you're going to present and go make things right with your brother before you offer an offering, because you have to let go of that anger. You have to get that junk out of your mind and out of your heart because you're called to even love your enemy, which he goes on to say later in this sermon. 
He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Don't perform this act. Don't do this thing. But I'm telling you that if you're having these feelings in your heart, if you're looking at people with lust, if you're letting this control your mind, if you're being conformed to the pattern of this world in the ways that you think about other people, in the ways you make them out to be some object that's to be leered at, I'm telling you you're already guilty of adultery in your heart because your heart and your perspective and your mind are broken. You are not becoming like me in the way that you think, in the way that you see. You're only concerned about what you do. If we're going to grow in our ability to follow Christ, if we're going to step out on this journey to be more like him, we have to make this shift where we let go of control the things that we can feel like are measurable markers along the way, feel like steps that we can take, things that we can do to make us feel like we're making progress, we have to let go of that control like Jesus walked away from those temptations and say, no, you don't understand. There's something bigger at work here. It's not just about what I do. It's not about what I could accomplish if I took control. It's not about using this authority and this power of the Spirit that's within me to take the quick shortcut It's about slowly letting my mind be renewed and my heart transformed because I take the time to stop and think about what's going on in my life. And therefore, when I see that person who's made me angry, I stop and I have to say, why am I mad at them? Is that really something they deserve to be judged or beaten up for? Is that really something that they did that hurt me? Or is that my own pride getting in the way? And maybe the way I see them is, I'm making them the enemy, and the real enemy is this tempter, this devil, the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, as John 10 puts it. I have to align my heart to see he's the real enemy, and my brothers and sisters, the people around me, the people Jesus says are my neighbor. They're the ones I'm supposed to love. And man, is it just me and my heart and my arrogance and and my stuff that's getting in the way, or do I have a real reason to be upset with them? And if I do have a real reason to be upset with them, should I talk about them behind their back? Should I just judge them and be angry about what's being said or what's being done? Should I just be aggravated and talk about them over here and not go to them and talk to them and just stay as far away from them as possible? Or should I lean into a conversation in humility and say, you know, here's what I'm feeling. I don't know if it's accurate or not. I don't know if it was your intention or not, but I just feel like we need to work through this because I love you and I value you and your relationship and your friendship more than I value being right. And I got to lay this down and we got to talk. Maybe it's about looking at the world and all the hype and all the news and all the evil and saying, instead of seeing all the evil and the brokenness, and like we talked about a few weeks ago, just saying, I want to get out of here. I want to move on to the next thing. God, come and rescue us and just bring us out of this mess. Maybe it's about letting our mind be transformed and renewed to say, no, I'm not supposed to cast them out and wipe them away and say, no, they're just a lost cause and walk away from it and just hope for a day down the road where I can be in glory with him. I am supposed to care so deeply about this world that I would be willing to give myself in sacrifice for those people that are lost and broken. Because that's what Jesus would do. In my perspective, if I'm truly being renewed to see the world through his eyes, I have a love that doesn't make sense, a love that would forgive the people who are crucifying me and beating me and hanging me on a cross. I have the kind of love that would look at Pharisees and people who completely broken everything that my God had worked so hard to set up and and made it all about themselves and made it all about doing And still extending them love and grace and saying, look, get it together because you're hanging these millstones around people's necks. And that's not a good thing and a good place for you to be. But this gift is still for you. 
Jesus' perspective on this world was always upside down. He said, the first will be last and the last will be first. Wait, what? Everything's upside down. Oh, you think that because they've accomplished all these things and they have this great position and they're a Pharisee, they should be lifted up? No, actually, I'm going to go hang out with these prostitutes and tax collectors because I didn't come to heal the healthy or the people who at least think they're healthy. I came to be a doctor for the sick, the ones who truly need it, the ones who actually want to receive it. He was constantly turning things upside down and on its head. He was changing perspective and helping us to see things in ways that didn't always make sense to us because our understanding is broken. Our ways of seeing are broken. That is what it means to conform to the pattern of this world. If everybody else is saying the same thing we are and everybody else is holding on to the same self-righteous anger that we are, if everyone else is condemning people the way that we are, we probably ought to take a quick look at what's going on because we're not supposed to be like everybody else. And if everybody else is reflecting the same kind of attitude we're having in that moment, it's a scary place to be. The question is, am I stopping long enough to allow myself perspective to say, Jesus, am I seeing this the way that you would see it? Am I giving you space and time to challenge my perspective on this world, to challenge my views of how I understand Am I just continuing to regurgitate the same stuff I've heard my entire life? Or am I stopping to actually look at this and say, am I seeing this your way? Do I have a heart for them like I should? Am I allowing space and time for you to renew my mind so that I can grow? Because it's not just about what we do in this world. It's about who we're becoming. And to become a Christ follower, we have to start to see the world through his eyes in that upside down sort of way where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Where it doesn't matter if you worked all day or just the last little bit of the day, you get paid the same wages. That infuriates everyone when he tells that story, and yet he says, it's mine. I'm the master. I get to pay people what I want, and that's the way I say things are. So you can come to terms with my perspective on this world. You can understand that it's not just about the bread that you eat, but it's about hanging on the word of God and what I say to be true. You can understand that it's not about making a big show of things and proclaiming to everybody that you have authority and power. You could humble yourself and say, don't put the Lord your God to the test. I'm going to walk humbly in this and seek his ways, not my own or what makes sense to me. It's not about bowing down and worshiping what the rest of the culture and the world bows down and worships to for the sake of getting to where we're supposed to be, for the sake of, well, if, I'm just, if, I, if I bow down to the things that everybody else is bowing down to, maybe my message will be more palatable and more people will come to see Jesus because I was a little more willing to do whatever. Because I was a little more willing to make people happy or do this or say that because that's what they wanted to hear. That's bowing down and worshiping something that's not the Lord our God. And he says, the only way to accomplish what it is you've set to accomplish is by fixing your eyes on me and worshiping me and letting your mind be renewed so that you can see this world the way I see it, that you can be transformed. And the rest of Romans 12 goes on to say, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, outdo each other in generosity, do things that are so radically different because of the way you see the world, so radically different from everyone else that it will be like heaping burning coals on their head. I know I quote or talk about Romans 12 more than y'all like to hear, but it goes back to that class and the way that it radically transformed the way I understood so much of who I was supposed to be. 
Because in that moment, in that place, in that time, God started using that verse and changing my perspective on it and saying, this is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to start seeing the world like I see it. Your love must be sincere, not just something where I say, yeah, of course I love the whole world. And then turn your back on them the next minute. But that you have to humbly and continually seek after God in a way where you say, God, I understand I'm trying to do a lot to be a good follower, but I just need to stop trying to do for a second so that I can see you and you can renew my mind. And after you've renewed my mind, after you've given me clear understanding of what it means to love these people in this sort of way, now I start to take action because now my action is fueled by who I am becoming. And it's not about what I can do to achieve something. It's about who I am becoming and what that means for me taking the next step. And so we're going to sing another song this morning, and we're going to wrap up things. But the question I have for you today, when was the last time you challenged your perspective or gave God room to actually renew your mind? We say God's word is new every day, and we can always learn new things from its pages. We say that we should always be growing and continuing on this journey. We say a lot of things about where our minds should be and how it should become. And yet, sometimes we find it really, really difficult to be open to listening to somebody who has a different perspective. Therefore, there's a bunch of churches all around town who do things different ways because we can't really sort out our differences on this one subject. And so therefore, it's worth you having a church and me having a church because we couldn't really work through this conversation And the reality is, are they still following Jesus? Are they still trying to worship Jesus? Yeah. Am I? Yeah. How is it that my mind needs to be renewed so that I can see a love and a concern for them and not just the differences? How is it that I need to wrestle and grow and change because I can't stop growing? The moment we stop growing is the moment we're not following Jesus. It's the moment we're just sitting still. Because we haven't challenged ourselves to continue growing in our renewal of mind. And again, that's not something we can do. It's something we have to make space for. And so the question this morning is, where are you letting God renew your mind? Where are you letting him have space to challenge your perspective? Where is it you're actually stopping in the moments of anger or frustration or in the moments of of lust or in the moments of whatever it is that Jesus speaks on? Or maybe it's not even something he did speak on. It was just something intensely that you felt today. And you got to stop and say, you know what? i got to stop and think about this for a second. Jesus, is this the perspective you want me to have? What am I missing here? What should I understand that I'm not? How is it that I could see differently than I do? How can I move beyond my understanding of this world and see the way you see? And if we're continually challenging our own thoughts and our own understanding and asking God to renew our minds, we will start to see a very different type of action and doing come forth out of our life, a different kind of fruit that starts to be produced. So if you would stand with me, and I'm just going to simply ask you this morning to say that simple prayer, God, I want to be open to hearing your voice, and I want to be open to having my mind renewed and my perspective changed. Where is it that I need to take that first step in letting you work? So if you would, if you need to pray for anything else this morning, you have something on your heart you want us to pray over, I'd ask you to come and we'd be happy to pray with you. But if not, just wrestle with him and say, God, what is it you're challenging me to push myself on? How do I need to grow in my perspective? Let's pray. Father, I love you. And I thank you for that class long, long ago 
where I was pushed to read that chapter and you challenged my perspective on what it means to let go of my own control, to let go of my own doing, and allow you, to allow you to transform my mind. Father, I know that I am where I am today and that I have come to where I have come in my life because of all the ways you've challenged my perspective and helped me think beyond the way this world thinks, beyond the perspective of this world. Many of us think we have the perspective of the world figured out, and yet we still continue to act in many ways the same. We may be different in some of our doing, but in some of our thinking, we are very much the same. And so, Father, I pray that you would challenge us and help us to think in the way that you would think. Father, to see the way you would see, to love the way you would love, to be renewed completely and wholeheartedly from the inside out. Father, I pray that you would make us your people and that we would become like you. It's the wonderful name of Jesus. I pray all these things. Amen.